The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And the title of the message uh, for today is The Test of Character. And we're going to be talking about Jesus as he was betrayed uh, by one of his own disciples, a very infamous character named Judas Iscariot, and then his arrest, and then beginning to set up the whole trial that will lead to Jesus going to the cross. And what I, as we go through these verses, I want you to be thinking about, I believe that that, that hour of chaos and crisis on that night was a great test. And we're going to talk about that because I believe that right now we're in a time of great testing. When we go through times of testing, when there is chaos, when there is great crisis, as there was that night with Jesus, when he was arrested and betrayed, what is God doing? What is going on? And that's what I want to share with you is in your hour of crisis, And in your being tested, what is God wanting for us to hear from him? So let's bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to everyone who is listening to this message from your word. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes Lord, that we, we ask for your help. We need the Holy Spirit uh, to give us divine understanding and revelation. Right now in our nation, within our culture, within our time, and literally around the world, we are in an hour of great chaos. Uh, we are in a time of great crisis. And Father, I want to pray in the name of Jesus, you would bring the healing, comforting presence of the Holy Spirit, and that any who are listening to this message who are sick, or any who are listening who have family, friends, relatives, or even co-workers who are sick, Lord, would you visit them now in the mighty, powerful, risen name of Jesus. For by your resurrection, you have conquered all sickness, all sin, all disease. You are the resurrection and the life. And therefore, would you touch them? Would you heal them? Would you deliver them? And would you make them whole in Jesus' mighty name? And now, Lord, may the bride, may the church hear what the Spirit says to her today in Jesus' name. Wonderful, mighty name we pray and ask all of these things. And everyone said, amen. All right, so I've just got uh, some application points that we're going to go through. There's only four of them, so we'll go through it uh, rather quickly, but I think that this is very, very powerful. Number one is, this is the hour of great testing. As we're going to begin reading the story in Matthew chapter 26, uh, beginning with verse 47, It says, and while he, which we're talking about Jesus, was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. 
So here we read that while Jesus was still speaking with the other disciples, while he was with the 11 in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we talked about last week, where he had been praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. And we shared last week how really Jesus was saying as the eternal son to the Father, Father, if there is any other way that man can be saved than by me going to the cross, taking that sin and that burden, being separated from you, let it come. And he prayed it three times. And each time the answer was the same. And, and it gives us the assurance that the cross, if there had been any other way, for man to be saved other than Jesus going to the cross and dying and paying for the sins of the world, then it would have been made available by the Father. But three times he prayed, three times the answer was the same. No, this is the way, the only way man can be saved. So then Jesus had been praying, sweating as it were great drops of blood, and he was talking to the disciples, teaching them to be spiritually ready, especially prepared for temptation. And he said, you've got to be awake. You've got to be alert. Don't fall asleep. And the disciples had fallen asleep in the hour when Jesus needed them the most. And I've thought a lot about this uh, from Jesus being in the garden and praying and in this moment of great crisis, you know, leading now to this betrayal and the arrest of Jesus and ultimately to the cross, how he wanted them to be awake we need to be awake and we need to pray. And I'm wondering if God is now using the circumstances around the whole world uh, to awaken us. Maybe we were asleep spiritually and maybe we were not really listening to him or paying attention to him. And so one of the purposes I believe that God is using in these corona times is he's waking people up. He's shaking everything that can be shaken. So while Jesus was talking to the other 11, Matthew writes, one of the 12, Judas, came to betray Jesus. Now, I'm thinking about this. This is Matthew. It's the first gospel in the New Testament. And he's writing this after the fact, after the resurrection even of Jesus. And, you know, it's amazing to me that Matthew didn't say more, or he didn't say something else about introducing Judas. Uh, because Judas' name, you know, as, as Christianity was birthed and as it began to grow and to spread, he was the one that everybody had heard of the story that he betrayed Jesus. And so to the earliest Christians, the name Judas became a byword. It was a synonym for betrayal and infamy. And I'm wondering, why didn't Matthew write, and then the false disciple, Judas, or the one who counted himself among the 12, named Judas? But he doesn't say that. He just says, and then Judas, who was one of the 12. And you know, not only does Matthew write that way about Judas Iscariot, but the other gospels, Mark and Luke and John, Whenever they refer to Judas, uh, they just say he was one of the 12. And what's interesting, what strikes me is that in the Gospels, they never speak of him with some kind of overt uh, disdain or some word to wrap him in uh, or hatred or rejection. 
He is just listed as one of the 12. And so here came Judas, and it says that in verse 47, he came with a great multitude with swords and clubs. Now let me define uh, this group and then maybe suggest how many might have actually been coming from the temple area, across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says there were officers from the temple, from the chief priests. These would have been Jewish uh, policemen or, or they were Jewish people that were uh, doing police responsibilities given power by the Roman government. But there were also not only uh, kind of the temple police, there were also, we are told we put the four gospels together, there were Roman soldiers. There were Roman garrison officers who were also there. There were also Pharisees, leaders of the Jewish community of the Pharisees. There were also members of the Sadducees, the other religious group. And then there were members from the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body. And as I read several of the commentaries on this, they said that the number of those who came, and they had swords, and they had clubs, it could have been as many as a thousand. A thousand armed you know, soldiers, police, with clubs and with swords coming for Jesus. Now, Jesus could have gone somewhere else. He, he went to a place where he knew Judas, who went out to betray him, would know where he was. So Jesus was not running away, and he was not afraid, and he was certainly not going to fight with them. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. But here was this great multitude. Can you imagine? This is overwhelming, unnecessary force that showed up. But Jesus had no intention of dodging them, trying to hide from them. In fact, he was ready and prepared to meet them. You know, sometimes you'll hear a story where there's somebody that maybe for political reasons or other reasons, they've done something wrong, and then they, you will see this kind of over-exaggerated uh, police force and helicopters and cars and guys with vests on and, you know, all kinds of ammunition, and, and it's the guy with his wife, and it's early in the morning, and he goes, what, what's going on? Oh, I would have come if you would have told me. But whenever you see sometimes that kind of overwhelming presence and force, you can always know there's an agenda behind it. They are sending a message. It's not just that they were afraid of Jesus or his small group of disciples, but they were making a statement. They were making a statement to all of the Jewish people, to all of the Romans, and in that hour. So here's this mixed multitude. Uh, and it's a very prophetic picture of how the world, both Jewish and Gentile, was treating the Messiah. This is after three and a half years where Jesus had done nothing but do miracle after miracle, healing after healing, uh, signs and wonders that had never been seen before. No prophet in all of Israel's history had done the supernatural, powerful, kinds of miracles. He could speak to nature and it obeyed him. He could rebuke the demonic spirits who knew who he was and cast them out. Fevers were obviously nothing to him. Blind eyes, 
deaf ears, the inability to speak, if they were lame, and even some who were dead, Jesus already now had raised people from the dead. And just a week before, he had raised a man named Lazarus that everybody in Jerusalem knew. And he was alive. And yet here they come. And instead of worshiping, this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the one they had wanted to come for centuries, the one they had prayed for, the one that there had been hundreds of prophecies foretelling. And he came. And even the people... You know, at this very Passover, we're wondering, is Jesus of Nazareth, could he be the Messiah, the Son of God? But instead of worshiping the Son of God as the Messiah, they take him, arrest him with overwhelming, unnecessary force, and then they crucified him. Now, as we look at this arrest that is happening there, you know, I want to go back to the story of the Old Testament of the Exodus, The Exodus was the number one story of God's sovereign divine intervention. It's where God allowed himself to be seen and known and revealed on the earth. I mean, literally, as we talked about the Passover and on that night, uh, when the angel of the Lord passed over and the life of the firstborn of every family, whether they were Jewish or Egyptian and Gentile, if they had put the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish, on their doorposts and on their lintel beam, their firstborn son was spared. And on that next day, after 400 years of slavery, a nation, probably two and a half million at least strong, was liberated and was set free. And they went out, and as they went out, they now, God manifest his divine presence. There was a cloud By day, you literally could see a physical manifestation of the supernatural presence of God. From the least and littlest all the way to the eldest of them, that's God. And then they began following that cloud. At night, the cloud would now transition into a pillar of fire. Can you imagine? A whole generation of Jewish people who could see God were now going out into the wilderness for the next 40 years. And this time in the wilderness, why did God bring them into the wilderness? So I wanna share with you a scripture, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, and you can read it along with me if you're at home. Why did, you know, why don't they just go from the Exodus to the promised land? Why must they go into the wilderness? And it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, it says, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. And now he tells them why. Why did we go through the wilderness? What was the purpose? What was the 40 years all about? To humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. In other words, God had a purpose. Yes, he had delivered them. Yes, he had a promised land for them. Yes, they were going to have a new identity. Yes, they were going to go into this glorious new land where a kingdom would come and where they would set up the temple and be a light to the nations of the world. But before they could get there, there was a time of transition. And the purpose of that transition was to test them. (laughs) And it wasn't to test them so that God could find out what was in their hearts or that God could discover 
whether or not they're going to listen to him or follow him or obey him. God knows everything. But he tested them to humble them so that they could know what was in their hearts and to see if they would come to an understanding that they would choose the character of following the Lord and being obedient to him. If I could put it this way, from the night of Passover, on their way to the promised land, they had to go through a 40-year time of transition. And it was a time of testing. Well, here's how I feel as I was praying and thinking about this, meditating on this particular message right now, I feel like this is where we are. We're at the end of April. We're now ready to go into a new month of May. We've been battling this plague, this virus, and we're praying and asking for God's divine intervention and help. And it is a time of testing. And I really believe that this next month, because now, you know, I think Sean already mentioned and said how they're making some little changes, starting to open things back up. Okay, you can now go to the beach or you can surf or kayak or whatever. So we've kind of reached the peak of the mountain. Now we're going back on the other side. It's a time of testing. It's going to be a time of transition. And God is testing us. And look, I am very, very aware that behind the scenes, uh, because this is, we've never been this way before. Joshua says in uh, chapter three, verse four, he goes, as we go, he goes, we've got to follow the glory of the Lord and follow the cloud of God's presence. We've never been this way before. I think that's very true for our country and for our generation right now. And we, you know, so we're wrestling about how much freedom to give and how much, you know, we want to protect people. We don't want people to get sick. We don't want them to die. And how should we do it? And they say sometimes one thing and then they turn around and say the exact opposite a little bit later. They've made some obvious mistakes along the way. We need to pray for them that God will give them wisdom. But it is churning. And guess what? The time in the wilderness was 40 years of people challenging Moses and the leadership and the direction, and the people were complaining. And some of them even said, why did you bring, you know, why, you brought us out of Egypt for this? God's doing miracles. God is showing up. He's doing supernatural things. And they were complaining. They were divided. They weren't together. And, and God said, this is, this is all part of the plan. Well, I believe that God is testing us. He's wanting us to call upon his name. It's a time of transition. This next month is going to be a time of transition. And, we, and he says, I do it to humble you. So we need to be humble and we need to seek the Lord and call on the name of the Lord. I want to say that on this night, when Judas came to betray Jesus, Judas was tested. And Judas failed the test. The disciples were being tested this night as well. And the very last verse of what we're going to read this day and this time and this message is, they all failed the test as well. The leadership of Israel was being tested, and they failed the test. We are being tested during this crisis. It's a, you know, it's a test physically for us to survive. It is a political test. It's an economic test and so we want the healings. And by the way, I put out uh, this last week a testimony of a man from Ireland. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but if you do, it's only five minutes or six minutes. And 
Anyway, it's this beautiful story and testimony of a man. He had the virus and how God divinely came into this hospital room where everybody was blocked off and wearing hazmat suits. Nobody could get to him. And God supernaturally came to him and blessed him and gave him a sign and he was healed. And it's very powerful and very beautiful. And like Sean was sharing, I I really am excited to hear the testimonies of what God's doing in your life and how he's answering our prayers, touching people and healing people. Well, let's look at the next couple of verses in the story. Verses 48 through 50. It says, now as his betrayer had given them a sign, whomever, so this is Judas, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and then kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. I want to say this, you know, as we think about this scene and what is happening, as I described, there were hundreds of soldiers, clubs and swords, uh, Jews and Gentiles, uh, Romans who were also there, uh, and this moment of crisis. And here's the point that I want to bring to you that we need to look at here. Crisis does not make or break you. It reveals you. This was a crisis that revealed the heart, really, of Judas. And ever since this man, Judas, came on this scene of human history, Judas has been the sign and the symbol of betrayal. And it makes you wonder, how could one of Jesus' own disciples, one of his inner circle who had been with him and seen all these miracles, heard the teaching of Jesus? And, and, you know, he had given every sign and every evidence that he was the Messiah. What What was he thinking? Why did he betray the Lord and in such a way? And we are not given explicitly the answer to that, but we can, you know, surmise somewhere, some way, Judas became disenchanted with Jesus' ministry. He was disappointed that Jesus did not turn out to be the kind of Messiah that he expected. It wasn't working out for Judas the way he thought it should. And maybe he was thinking, perhaps he was thinking, well, I have seen Jesus use all of this supernatural power and authority. Why doesn't he use his obvious power and authority, supernatural powers to overthrow the religious leaders and Rome and establish the kingdom immediately and bring it now? Maybe he was even trying to force his hand that if I do this, then he will demonstrate those powers. And if he doesn't, then he is not the Messiah that we would like. And that, so here, as Judas is being tested, he was looking at the only perfect human being who has ever lived or walked on the face of the earth. Love, everything Jesus did was motivated by love. The power of God, the glory of God, the intimacy of communion and fellowship between father and son was demonstrated daily. And he had been with so close to Jesus. How could he have been disappointed with the Lord? But I want to ask this question. Are there some of you that maybe God has not turned out the way that you thought he would? He has not used his power. He's God. He's all-powerful. He controls all things. 
And I don't understand why he allowed this to happen in my life or why he allowed that to happen. It doesn't seem to make sense. And so you build a case little by little and before you know it, you're rejecting. Well, if that's the way you are, then I don't want to be with you or I don't want to be part of you. Well, that's exactly how Judas was thinking. Instead of teaching the disciples about how to conquer the world and control the world, Jesus was instead teaching his disciples how to surrender their lives to the Holy Spirit and surrender their lives to the will of the Father in heaven and how to love one another and serve one another. And instead of getting richer and richer, they were becoming poorer and poorer. Even though Judas held the purse and he took things financially if he needed them, we find out from the Gospels as well. But following Jesus was, in Judas' mind, going nowhere but the cross, and he wanted out. Now, I want to make this one point, because Judas becomes a warning. Jesus said about Judas, and, and I want to say this, that Jesus loved Judas. Jesus went to the cross for Judas, just like he did for every other human being. And though he knew what Judas would do from the beginning, and it had actually been you know, predicted and pro prophesied that he would be betrayed, yet Jesus loved him, reached out to him, was sincerely wanting for Judas to not betray him, and yet he did. And what's interesting is that Judas acted alone. He betrayed Jesus alone. If he was so disappointed or disillusioned, why didn't he grab another disciple and say, hey, this isn't working out the way I thought it should. Does it seem like he's not the Messiah to you? Are you having the same doubts or questions that I am? Why didn't he talk to Jesus about it? G Judas gave the appearance for three years that I love you, I follow you, I trust in you. But on the inside, he had all of these fears, all of these worries, all these concerns, all of these doubts, and finally all of this rejection. But he never let what was inside be open and honest on the outside with Jesus. In fact, the way that he now betrays Jesus, where it says he came up and gave Jesus a kiss, for those who have been to the Middle East, you know that it's part of their culture uh, that if you want to show respect, for position or uh, elders or religious people or whatever that you kiss them or you might kiss them on the hand. But there is another word that is used that describes one of fondness, of relationship, of intimacy, of friendship, if not family itself. And there you kiss them on the cheek, but you don't just kiss them once. It's like, mm, you're, you're kissing them and kissing them and kissing them. I love you your family. So what's interesting is that while Judas that night had already made an arrangement, I'm going to betray him, he wanted it to appear to Jesus as well as to the disciples that, oh, I just happened to be here and, oh, there's my rabbi. Oh, I love you and I, I just am so affectionate toward you and he's kissing and kissing and kissing him and then acting surprised like, oh, what are all these soldiers here? And now they're taking you away. In other words, Judas held, wanted to hold the appearance of being a follower of Jesus when in reality he had already betrayed him. It, I mean, that is, and, and that, I believe, broke Jesus' heart 
more than all the rest and even the betrayal of Peter because he knew what was inside of Judas. He knew that he was feigning innocence and affection. He was keeping up appearances. And what Judas did not realize is that he, in that act, betrayed with a kiss or kisses the dearest friend that he had ever have for all of eternity. And it just is so sad. It's so sad. Well, let's look at the next life lesson that we can see within our story here. Let's read verses 51 through 53. It says, and suddenly... One of those, so that right after Judas came up, oh, Rabbi, there you are, Jesus. And now they go, okay, that's the guy. Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Wow. I I put here, character is revealed by the choices we make in the midst of crisis. Well, as we read here, there's a disciple, one of the disciples who becomes impulsive and volatile. Who do you think that it is? Well, if you've read the other gospels, you already know that it is Peter. And Peter may have actually been emboldened uh, to, to do what he did, because if you're talking about hundreds of soldiers with swords and spears and everything, where in the world even, there were only two of the disciples that even had something that they, you know, two swords among the other 11 disciples. What gave Peter that boldness? Well, he may have been emboldened that a few moments earlier when all of these soldiers came And there's Jesus, and Jesus led the conversation. Who are you looking for? And they, now on the defensive a little bit, said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus looked them directly in the eye, and he said, I am he. I am. That is within that, in the Hebrew language, the very Name of God, I am that I am. And amazingly, the gospels tell us that when Jesus asked them a question, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. They all fell down. Can you imagine? Have you ever really thought about soldiers, uh, Romans, police with clubs, with spears? And this man's mouth opens and says, I am he. And they all fall down. Man, I would love to have been there and to see that. So again, everybody knew, they didn't know what hit them, but they had just been hit by the presence of God. Everywhere in the entire Old Testament where the presence of God or the glory of God came, people could not stand. Not simply because they were going to bow down to honor the Lord, but the weight of God's glory is so heavy, you can't stand. The presence of God brings you to the ground. The weight of glory. And there was a revelation of the Shekinah. This was supernatural. The disciples knew it, and the soldiers saw it and were affected by it, and they all got knocked down. Who is this guy that says, I am he, and we all fall down? Who's really in charge here? Who's really in control? But maybe in that 
brief moment of the supernatural. Can you imagine a thousand soldiers falling down? And Peter goes, this is it. This is our time. Here we go. And he grabs and he swings. Now, Peter was not a soldier. He was not even a policeman. He was trying to chop the guy's head off and he missed. <laughs> he was a bad swordsman. He's going like that and the guy goes, ah, and he goes like this and he cuts off his ear. <laughs> not only had Jesus said, I am he, and they all fell down, but now when Peter goes, and he misses and cuts off the guy's ear, and then the guy's looking at him and all the soldiers, and Peter goes, uh-oh, now what? And then there's a, there's a ear on the ground. And the gospels tell us, and by the way, this is the only time in all four gospels that Jesus healed a fresh wound where there was obvious blood from this, the side of this guy's head. And the gospels tell us that they reached out and they brought the ear. Jesus put the ear back on the guy's head like this. And the next thing you know, it reattaches. There's another sign. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And he was demonstrating the power of God, the glory of God, when they all were knocked down by him saying, I am he. And now healing a fresh wound where the guy's ear literally reattaches. He was showing, I'm here. You, you can't come for me. And then he talks about all of these, these angels. But before we look at that, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 4 and 5. And so read and follow along with me here. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds. And it goes on to say, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen to me. You and I cannot go backwards. I mean, Peter, he blew it. What Peter did, uh, you know, yes, Jesus had said earlier, hey, get swords and get ready and get prepared. But when he had said that, he was talking spiritually. He wasn't because only two of the disciples even had swords. What are two guys with swords that are fishermen or tax collector or whatever? What are they going to do with a thousand policemen and Roman guards or whatever? Jesus was not trying to, he does not use the arm of warfare to bring the kingdom of heaven. And that's why later the apostle Paul, who saw the glory of the Lord in Jesus and was transformed and saved and born again, is the one who wrote for the weapons of our warfare in the kingdom of heaven against the fallen kings and gods of this world are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're mighty through God to the taking down of every evil stronghold. And how do we do that? By taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Now Peter in the test blew it. Peter could not go back and undo what he'd already done, let alone later denying the Lord three times, which is going to happen. So what do you do when you've already really blown it? You've already failed the test. 
Listen, you and I cannot go backwards in our past mistakes and past failures and change what we have done. But here's what we can do. We can say, Lord, I humble myself before you and I want to be a different man. I want to be a different woman. I want to be a man of character. I want to be a woman of God. I want to be a child of the Spirit. And from now on, when I have a fleshly thought or a fleshly solution to something, I want to take that thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. I want to be a person of character and of integrity and of loving kindness. And by the way, do you know this is what Peter did? Peter couldn't go backwards, but guess what? Peter would go forward and Peter repented and he received forgiveness from the Lord and he became a mighty man of God and a man of the Spirit. And he wrote letters that were included in the New Testament, God's inspired word, and he ended his life by being a martyr. Peter himself, according to church historians tell us, was martyred. He was crucified, even by story, upside down, for he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord was. So he became a different man, a godly man, a spiritual man, because he began to take his thoughts captive to the Lord. And then verse 53 talks about Jesus saying, hey, no, that's not what I'm about. I'm not here to fight these guys in a physical way. In fact, I'm really here to fulfill prophecy. And my father is required through prayer that I go to the cross. He says, I could have called 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion was composed of 6,000 soldiers. So if he says, I could have called 12 legions of angels, Jesus is saying, do you not know that I could right now give the word and they're there ready and waiting, 72,000 angels would show up just like that. And these guys here would be no contest for them. Can you imagine 72,000 angels? That's the number that Jesus was referring to. And one story in the Old Testament tells us that this battle between Israel and Syria, Assyria, and God sent one night one angel, and that night 185,000 of the enemies of God's people died in one night. So if one angel can take out 185,000, you can only imagine what 72,000 would do. So the point was not a battle fighting in the flesh. This was all about the will of God. Well, let's go to the next point here of application. Prophecy demonstrates that God is in charge. Look with me at verse uh, 54. It says in verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled? So after saying I could have called 72,000 angels, Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm about here today. For then how could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him 
and fled. Everybody failed the test that night. But I want to say this, prophecy demonstrates that God is in charge. And I want to say that on that night, there was a tremendous crisis. There was a lot of fear for a lot of reasons. There was great chaos. But God Almighty was in the midst of the crisis. God Almighty's plan was even unfolding in the midst of the chaos that night. This was the plan and the purpose of God all unfolding, which he had already declared through his prophets. Everything that was happening that night had already been pre-known and predetermined and predicted and prophesied that it would come to pass. And this was a prophecy 700 years before Jesus came to this night. It's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said would happen to the Messiah when he came to his own people, the Jewish people. Isaiah says the Messiah would be betrayed. Then it says, and he'll be betrayed by a friend. He will be despised and forsaken by men. He will also be a man of great sorrows, very moved emotionally, tenderness, compassion for the people of Israel and for the world. He will also be acquainted with grief. He has just come from praying and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood for the people of the world. Isaiah said, he, the Messiah, will be smitten of God. He will be afflicted. He goes on to say, he will be pierced through for our transgressions. The Messiah will be crushed, Isaiah said, for our iniquities. He will be chastened, but it will be for our healing and our well-being. Isaiah goes on to say, and this really is very moving and touching that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Why? If he would render himself as a guilt offering, for he will justify multitudes and he will bear their iniquities. This is this was the plan of God. This was the purpose of God. This wasn't something that happened to Jesus or they took advantage of him, God had known it. God the Father had planned it. He had predicted it. He had laid it out. Jesus had grown up his whole life preparing for it and now was willing and, and able to give himself for the Father's will if this is what it will take. He loved us enough to lay down his life. The Father loved us enough that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So whatever the world's purposes might be, whatever their plans were, they didn't realize that by crucifying Jesus, both the Jewish people and the Gentiles through the Roman military were accomplishing scripture. They were accomplishing the Jewish scriptures. And the prophets had foretold all that would happen. So we're gonna stop there for right now, but I want you to notice that as the disciples' faithfulness decreased until not only did Judas betray him, but all the rest of them fled 
into the darkness and abandon Jesus alone that night. So as their faithfulness decreased, Jesus demonstrated his power and his glory and his character and his integrity and his loving kindness more and more and more and more. In the hour of chaos, in the hour of crisis, the beautiful character that came through Jesus was literally, that has to be God manifest in human form, the Son of God that takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.